Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what's up, everybody? You know, when I slash, I, I think I can say we, when we think about hunting, oftentimes I think things like family, friends, spending quality time together, enjoying nature, providing for our families, tradition. These are all things that at least I feel like they come to our minds. What doesn't necessarily come to my mind are those things being political. And I think, unfortunately, I guess I'll say unfortunately, I'll provide my opinion, my commentary. They really are nowadays. So we are sitting down here. Well, we're not sitting down here with, we're sitting down with remotely. Uh, We've got Sean and Evan from the Sportsman's Alliance. And uh, gentlemen, number one, thanks for joining us. And number two, since you can do it way better than I can, uh, maybe introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about the Sportsman's Alliance and, and, and what you guys are about. Sean Curran, Vice President of uh, Membership and Corporate Partnerships. Um, Sportsman's Alliance is uh, a 40-year-old organization. For many of the years, we've kind of been the political force behind the scenes working with all the other major groups out there, all your other NGO partners like National Shooting Sports Foundation or Turkey Federation, RMEF, all those groups, along with local and state-based groups. But we've been focused on fighting behind the scenes for sportsmen's issues. So we do so in state legislatures, we do so at the ballot box, and we do so in the court system. Uh, and we've been doing that, well, for 41 years now. And that's largely been, and still remains, you know, our mission is to protect the American traditions of hunting, fishing, and trapping. So, you know, in a nutshell, anytime that there is a piece of legislation introduced or, you know, a ballot initiative, it would be prohibitive or would attack those sorts of things that we love to go out and do. That's when our organization gets involved. And, you know, we work at the grassroots level on up to defend our rights to go out there and do those types of things. So that's that's kind of the elevator speech for the organization. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah, Evan Giesingfeld, president and CEO, and, and Sean said it well, you know, our our sole mission in life, we wake up every day thinking about how to protect this great heritage that we have, the, the, the sports that we enjoy, the, the, the pursuits and pastimes we all all think about all day long. You know, we're we're uh, we're dedicated sportsmen and women in our office who get the pleasure to work on these kinds of things all year long. But but first and foremost, we're hunters, we're anglers, we're trappers at heart. And so, getting getting the opportunity, getting the blessing to be able to wake up every day and, and fight these fights, it's you know, for us, it really is protecting what's right. You know, it's really about protecting uh, the best parts of, of our, our culture and of our, our, our world. And so for us, it's, it's, it's a joy. Awesome. Hey, what, out of curiosity, like what moment was it for you guys that you're like, yep, kind of this is going to be my life's mission, if you will. Like, was there a certain issue that you're like, wow, like I need to be a part of this and I need to, I need to, you know, do my part to protect these things. And or was it just something you just fell into naturally, or how did that go? For me, it's something I kind of fell into naturally. You know, my background is, is a more political and legislative background. I, I, I guess I grew up working in the state legislature in the U.S. Senate, so I come from the very technical application side of the business, you know, understanding government affairs, understanding the, you know, the ins and outs of how the legislative process works. And so uh, for me, I kind of fell into it from that direction, and, and it quickly became a passion. It quickly became, you know, second nature to – to wake up thinking about these things every day. I mean, Sean, 
on the other hand, is uh, he's been with us five years now mm-hmm. and, and came to it a little bit later in life, uh, a little bit later into his hunting career. Uh, and, and probably was more on the uh, opportunity to work in a passion space. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I've been doing stuff outdoors since I was born. I mean, my grandpa had me outside, you know, fishing. And, and when he would come back from hunting trips, I was the first person over there sitting on the back of deer, at, you know, 18 months old, getting my picture taken and just loving it. So it's, it's always been part of who I am and what I do. Several years ago, I was just, you know, reading the newspaper and, and there was a you know, part in the outdoor section. It was talking about some things going on in the political sphere that it, it touched on hunting. And I'm like reading the paper and, you know, the Columbus based U.S. Sportsman's Alliance is working to fight this. I'm like, I've, I've lived in Ohio my entire life and I, you know, I'm a member of all these other groups and, and this, that, and how the hell have I not heard of these guys for what they're doing? And so I came about it that way, you know, joined, became a member and then, you know, later down the road had the opportunity to come and work here and so you know as evan said it's a you know it's a blessing it's a passion for all of us because we're you know through and through sportsmen and love being outside and, and doing this type of stuff and it's just uh it's crazy that uh that, you know we live in the day and age where these things are politicized and that we have to be engaged in these type of you know these types of fights just to protect everything that we love very cool yeah it's you know you're talking about like you know, the legislative process and bills and things like that. And I know for me personally, like that might as well be, you know, Mars, right? And I probably should be more okay. informed on that. So number one, it's nice to have you guys to uh, be very well versed in that. But speaking to that, like how is hunting and trapping and even fishing, I guess how and who and what are, what things are threatening those activities? Maybe that's sure. too many well, questions at once. <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, that's fine. We can, we can try to address those. Um, no, I think it's a good question. It's, a, it's, it's one that a lot of folks in our community don't, don't spend a lot of time thinking about. You know, as Sean kind of alluded to there, it's, it's, we wake up every day thinking about, you know, that buck we're chasing or, you know, that fishing trip that's coming up. Or turkey season. That's turkey season. Right. Yes. <laughs> we don't wake up thinking about, we need to go to the legislature and advocate on this. And we don't think about, well, what about that lawsuit that's pending that's hanging out there? There's a whole other community of people uh, on the other side of these issues that that is their passion. Their passion is trying to stop these activities. Their passion is trying to shut down a deer season or a, a mountain lion season or a bear season. So for us, you know, it, it's, it's something where, where folks need to be involved. They need to be thinking about it. It's, it's imperative to protecting our way of life. Yeah, nobody wants to have undue political influence on their hunting season. But the reality of the situation today is that politics are involved. Politics are very local. You know, you, you talk about everything from local zoning issues all the way up to how we manage wildlife, you know, and, and other much, much bigger and more front and center issues. Politics are interweaved into everything. And so if we're not playing in that space, we're not playing in that game, we're missing an opportunity to to impact the future of the resource we all care about. And so from our perspective, it you know, it is imperative. Uh, it, it is important, and it's really critical for the rank and file uh, hunters and even anglers and trappers, especially, to to stand up and, and have their voices be heard. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it does. I mean, did you guys have anything, any questions that dovetailed into that one at all? Or yeah, I know I I was trying to let you do your flow here. Well, to get into I know some of the stuff that we were planning on talking about. I guess you know I I, I would be curious too, and I mean this will this will wind up dovetailing into it, but. What wind up being most of the opposing views that hunters and anglers and trappers wind up having to deal with most of the time? I mean, there's, I feel like there's a, 
natural tendency to believe that probably most of the opposition for hunting comes from a lot of the, I'll just, you know, say like, what do they call bunny huggers, you know, or something like that. People who they look at a deer and they see a cute animal and they think, how can anybody ever want to kill it? You know, is that, is that where a lot of this comes from? Are there, uh, are there other things that hunters and anglers and trappers wind up, I'll just say hunters for short in the future, but they wind up having to deal with or, or come up with their, you know, their opposing or their, uh, try and educate other people on? So, yeah, you, you know, I'll split that an- the answer to that into kind of two different, into two different answers. There's, there's two different sets of people out there, right? When you're, when you're talking about the general public, the debate is much more centered around the usage of the animal and the intent of the hunt, right? So is, is it framed as a trophy hunt or are you using the meat to feed your family? And if you look at the way that the general public and public opinion polling comes back on those two issues, it's wildly different. And it, it could be the same hunt. It could be a white-tailed deer hunt. But if you frame it as a trophy debate, if you frame it as, you know, you're trying to hang a head on the wall or, or get antlers for whatever purpose versus you're going out there for spending time with friends and family or going out there for uh, to, to feed your family, the way that the response from the general public comes back to that is, is wildly different. So you can, from, from that perspective, you know, a lot of it's about messaging, education, and making sure we're putting our best foot forward. On the other side of it, you have these, these organizations out there that are made up of members uh, of, of anti-hunting organizations, animal rights organizations. They're made up of very rabid advocate members who believe strongly that they need to shut down not only hunting, but animal usage across multiple spectrums, you know, the, the agriculture industry, the rodeo industry, you know. Circuses. Uh, circuses, those kinds of things. And and for them, it's it's much less about why you're doing these things. It's much less about are you feeding your family. It's, you know, if you really get down to their true beliefs, they sh- you shouldn't be hunting. You shouldn't be using these animals for these purposes. But they know that from a messaging perspective, they can't go to the general public and say, let's, let's end deer hunting. You know, let's, well, let's shut down bass fishing. You know, I mean, there's no broad public support for that. So what they go after are perceived fringes of our community, right? The perceived weak links of our community. So they're talking about things that don't have a lot of a lot of people doing it. So trapping is, is certainly a big target there. There's just not a lot of licensed trappers in this country anymore. They also look at things that they can uh, skew, things that they can twist to be to seem cruel and inhumane. They talk about the most inhumane methods of hunting. So you're talking about guys who chase bears or, or mountain lions with dogs. You know, they talk about baiting. They talk about some of these issues that they believe that they can drive a wedge between not only hunters and the general public, but sometimes hunters, hunters themselves. themselves, absolutely. And so it's, it really is a, it's a divide and conquer tactic. You know, we're, we're not going to, they're not going to be successful coming after white-tailed deer hunting in, in Kentucky or Iowa or Illinois or Ohio. Uh, but they might be on some of these other fringe issues where they can just, you know, push the death by a thousand cuts perspective, where they're just cutting away at the exterior. And all of a sudden, you're wheeling off 5,000 sportsmen this year and 10,000 next year. And all of a sudden, you turn around one day and realize, you know, we don't have those people anymore. Their passion's gone. So, you know, you're not, they're not just going to automatically turn themselves into deer hunters. And so there's really kind of two different perspectives there. One is how does the general public view these topics and how do they view what we do every day? And then two is, is how it, how is it portrayed by these these well well funded advocacy organizations who have a very radical agenda, uh, not only with hunting but well beyond that as well. 
So is it safe to say that one of your biggest challenges is not necessarily opposing a lot of these groups that you're talking about, but actually one of the biggest challenges is just educating current hunters out there to understand what's going on? Like, I mean, you talk about, for example, you know, trapping, and while I haven't done any trapping yet, I'd certainly be interested to go trapping one day. But even if, let's just say, I wasn't, I might go along ho-hum in my whitetail hunting area here of Wisconsin, southwestern Wisconsin is sort of a whitetail mecca and just be all fat and happy and then all of a sudden want to go do something else and realize that's no longer an option or all of a sudden me being a hunter is becoming more and more of a of an oddity to the, the general public because so many other forms of hunting are gone so you have less hunters out there, you know, and so you start to be alienated a little bit more. I mean, is that does well, that start to become part of the part of the issue well i mean you're even talking about awareness jim we're like let's say maybe you are a whitetail hunter and you know there's a lot of you, know, you talk about a big group of folks in the hunting community right so that's probably not like you mentioned the first group of folks that's going to get you know targeted if you will you may be just super passionate about whitetail hunting and you aren't exploring some of these other options fine but you're probably not aware of some of the issues that could threaten those and then ultimately Threaten whitetail hunting. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, a point that you guys brought up there is how well-funded all those animal rights organizations are. And so I guess my question off that is even given that, like, hunting numbers, hunter numbers are, you know, kind of slowly on the decline, what are you guys seeing as far as membership goes? Is Are you guys seeing an increase in membership despite hunter numbers dwindling? Or, or what are you guys seeing in that regard? You know, you know we, our organization has seen an increase in membership in the last several years. Just to kind of go back a little bit and talk about the history of the organization, you know, for when we were founded 41 years ago, we weren't founded to be a membership organization. We were to be the organization that was the specialist, right? If you get sick and you go to your doctor, your doctor doesn't know what to do, he's going to send you to the specialist. That's what we were, right? So we would be the political specialist that the other groups would come to when they were having these issues because they focus on habitat. They focus on specific animals. We would then partner with them, leverage their memberships and their chapters to fight these issues. Over the years, our membership and, and, and donors and funding kind of grew by happenstance because these other members of other groups would learn about the Sportsman's Alliance and say, well, how can I be a member there? So we kind of just kind of grew organically by happenstance there. You know, several years ago, we put together you know, a structure with intention to grow our membership because we don't need to be the next Turkey Federation or DU or RMEF, but we need to be a heck of a lot bigger than what we are right now. So fortunately, yes, our organization is growing. Our membership is growing because of that, but we need to get a lot more people involved. You know, we're, we're talking kind of long-term goals, you know, looking at hundred licensed trends, right? And the, the last data suggests that there's around 11 and a half million licensed hunters in the U S you know, long-term goal for us, if we had just 1% of every single license buying hunter become a member to this organization, you know, that's a game changer for us. That's more issues that we can engage in. That's more battles that we can fight. It's also more proactive things that we can do to help get more people involved in hunting, to open more access to do those types of things. And that's just a small percentage of everybody who's out there. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's a long-term goal for this organization is to get to that to that level, yeah. to that 1% of everybody who's out there hunting, to also be a member of this organization. Yeah. I think another thing we've seen, you know, in addition to the growth and just the general awareness is uh, is a veracity amongst folks 
these days versus maybe five or 10 years ago, people are much more interested in being active. Yep. They're much more engaged, uh, not only on social media, but, but across all of our channels of communicating to folks. You know, folks want to, once they find out what's going on, once they see the threat for themselves, once they can feel what's actually coming. And, and for a lot of people in this country, a lot of people in our community in this country, they don't have a threat in their backyard. You know, there's not a, a ton of anti-hunting threats that go on in Alabama or Texas, yeah. right? You know, if you live in, in California States. or Washington yeah. State, yeah, you, you have a much better appreciation for it. But across the board, I say, I've seen the, the change in the last five or 10 years of people wanting to be engaged. They want to do, do right. They want to do good. But they just need some direction. And so I certainly think we can fill that niche for them. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point because, you know, like you see things happening across the state. And even if it's not in your backyard, there's nothing out there that says next month it isn't going to be in your backyard. So I think paying attention to some of those, like, you know, nationwide issues, yeah. even if it's not affecting you directly, there's nothing that says it's not going to be there next week. Well, and you're always, the, you're always at the potential to become a fringe thing too mm -hmm. you know you talk about a lot of these animal rights folks going after the fringe areas and you know let's say you go after a fringe issue or something like that and they're successful well an organization like that they don't necessarily you don't have like this core circle that it has a bunch of little pieces off of it they don't necessarily just shave that and then leave this nice core circle they create more new mm -hmm. fringes so you think you're all fine and dandy in the middle of this nice spot you got a lot of cushion so to yep. speak but all of a sudden, they start eating away at that, and next thing you know, you're the fringe thing. You're the oddity. Mm -hmm. Well, the fringe is, is up to their definition, too. That's the, that's the key here. It's how they're messaging it. They're making these things seem cruel and inhumane. They're messaging it that direction. You know, you don't have to go very far back in history when they had a campaign to end bow hunting. You know, and so it, that fell out of favor because, you know, bow hunting was increasing in popularity. But just 20, 30, yeah. 35 years ago, bow hunting was a major, major target of these kinds of groups. And that doesn't mean it can't be again. But, you know, to your point, they're, they're, we think of ourselves as 11 and a half million or 15 million hunters. But what we really are is 15 million siloed, you know, individual folks who are interested in, in vastly different things. Yeah. You know, try to convince a, a deer hunter in Alabama why you should care about a, a black bear hunting bill in, in, in Maine or why I should care about one of our federal lawsuits in Alaska is a challenge, especially if it's not in his backyard or in his passion area. Yeah. Um, and so it, 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 we, we like to group ourselves together, but we're really a, a collection of much smaller silos of interests. Yeah. I seriously tried to ban bow hunting, like just in general. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that was probably even a little bit before my time. I don't recall that, but I mean, it, right now, it just yeah, it seems yeah. like an asinine thought, right? And, it, and it's not even something in the future. It's already happened. Yeah those, yeah, those initiatives were going on in the uh, you know late 80s and early 90s where they were attacking bow hunting. You know, and, and we actually at that point in time had a you know a bow hunter coalition because there were so many issues going on out there that the organization was partnering with other organizations out there to fight these things. You know, the the IBO, the International Bow Hunting Organization, is a longtime supporter of this organization, um, and that that came about from those attacks years and years and years ago. Wow. And so. We were able to, to stop those things, but, you know, once some of these other things, if they get sliced away, guess what they're going to come back on? Well, right. They're not just going to go home. They're not going to pick up their toys and go back to their, their sandbox and be happy. They're going to yeah. turn their attention to the next, you know, the yeah. next item. Yeah. Whatever it might be. 
Well, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we had discussed too, kind of getting into, into a little bit more of the meat of this and, and some specifics, one of the things we discussed prior to getting on here as an example of something that did wind up going through is this New Jersey black bear hunting season. Now, I, and, and I'm going to be even honest, I'm not fully up to speed on everything that I probably should be with that, but it's a perfect example of essentially politics preventing a hunting season in a certain state for an an, for no scientific reason scientific reason is that right how would you guys explain kind of how that went down as as real life example of something that's happened right now or maybe even a little bit a little bit deeper maybe this is where you'll go anyway but that that hunt in particular to jim's point what we were talking about earlier like really probably is a very perfect example, but that, that hunt has had a lot of history and contention to it for quite a while. It's not what ultimately happened didn't just come out of the blue. Am I correct? No. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we've been, we've been fighting this issue for 15, 17 years now, and, and they've had off again, on again seasons for black bears in New Jersey. Obviously it's a very highly contentious issue in that state, uh, simply based on the politics of, of the demographics of that state, you know, it's a, it's 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 not a friendly state to hunting in general. Uh, there's a lot of folks who are anti-hunting, and a lot of folks who don't understand the benefits of wildlife management and need to manage uh, apex predators like that. What happened here recently is the the worst of politics getting involved in wildlife management. So what you had was, uh, as Chris Christie was leaving office, the Republican governor who had been governor for eight years, uh, the state elected a new uh, new governor. Uh, a Democrat, Phil Murphy, and one of the things he had campaigned on to get elected to be governor was that if he were elected, he was going to shut down the black bear hunt, period. He promised that to animal rights groups. is one of the things he campaigned on publicly. Needless to say, he won the election, and, and one of their first moves in office was to to look to shut down the bear hunt. Now, they couldn't, once he got in there, he figured out he couldn't shut it down uh, completely because some of those lawsuits we fought in the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, but what he did have the authority to do, at least in their view, was issue an executive order to shut down black bear hunting on state lands. So uh, that's exactly what he did. He ordered the, in August, he issued an order directing the DEP commissioner in the state to shut down uh, black bear hunting on, on, on state public lands. And she went ahead and did so. So you're talking about uh, roughly 40% of the bears in the state are taken on, on state lands. So it's a significant, significant impact to not only the hunting season, but also just wildlife management in general and how they try to control their bear population. So the hunting season isn't completely gone. It's just that basically access to places to hunt these black bear has been significantly limited. Does that leave ba- does that leave people essentially with federal public land? I don't even know what the public land situation is like out in New Jersey. I mean, it's not a huge state to, for starters. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't. I don't believe there's a ton of federal land. Um, I could be wrong on that. I'd have to have to talk to our attorneys on that. But I, I think it's a significant, uh, significant amount of the public land that's available to to access. You know, obviously the rest of the hunt would take place on on private lands if you could get access to those mm-hmm. uh, spots. But it, it you know, it, it's roughly forty percent of the bears they take, and so it is. It shows you the dramatic impact that kind of closure has. Yeah, and yeah, that's definitely like way significant in this. What's funny is like the you know the public lands you know movement if you will right now is is such a hot topic and I mean this is just like a prime example of something that's like it's not even a threat like this happened and yeah. you know I mean you've significantly limited access like you said you've limited 
harvest. You've limited the ability to, to manage these apex predators with the models that work. Not to I'm, mention a barrier to entry for people who might be wanting on the fence about getting into hunting. Take away yeah. the places to hunt. Take away well, the places. And, I mean, I just I find it astounding that this actually hasn't like I haven't heard more about it. Yes, yeah, it, exactly. And plus, and not even to mention the fact that Eric, you already said the phrase. There's no scientific reason as to why it happened at all. I mean, it just it, if you actually look, it, doesn't New Jersey have like a ton of black bears? If I'm not mistaken, as far as I mean, you know, for the size of the state and all that stuff. I mean. It's the most densely populated state with people. It's the most densely populated state with bears. And so you put those two things overlapping each other, and it's a recipe for disaster without proper management. And it, 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 it can be even a challenge, I'm sure, with proper management to still uh, avoid incidents and, and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's a big issue. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the reasons we sued, uh, we sued to stop it. You know, because that's, that's one of those things that you just can't let go. At some point, you have to put your foot in the ground. So we got, we got to do something about this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and plus too, I mean, if you just if you have far, I guess in this case, far dramatically reduced management of these black bear, too. I mean, if less black bear are being killed over the course of a hunting season from hunters, it's not just like you know, and, and the population continues to increase, and the population density of black bears in that state continues to increase. It's not just like, oh, okay. You know, like that doesn't that doesn't not have an effect, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's there's going to be likely more black bears, right? And when you have that many people in a tiny little state with that many black bears, like you said, there's going to be more incidents of mm-hmm. black bears and people coming into contact with one another. Yep. And that's not an ideal situation. And so there still is going to have to be some form of you know control because what does somebody do when there's black bears in their backyard right. you know ripping up stuff or whatever terrorizing folks in their yards or things like that and i mean what do they do they're gonna have to call someone mm-hmm. like animal control or something yep. which is gonna have to cost the state money and it's gonna have to cost the people money mm-hmm. and it's like mark you were talking earlier you're like oh, okay great yeah like let's find a way to spend more money instead when hunters could mm-hmm. be paying money actually to the state to be doing this management themselves well and, you know to your, to your earlier point you know that's exactly right i mean this was a completely arbitrary decision. There was no science behind it. There was no evidence behind it. There wasn't even an administrative record to support it. They basically came in and said, we're doing it. You know, that's despite having a properly established uh, bear management plan that lays out the parameters for, for how to manage these bears, what kind of take you want to see, what kind of management they're going to do. Uh, the governor and, and his DEP commissioner just came in and said, nope, it's done. No more. Uh, so, you know, obviously that's one of our... Uh, that almost in and of itself makes our, our legal argument for us that it's an arbitrary and capricious closure. Mm-hmm. You know, point which they come in and say that we don't have any we don't have any rules or we don't have any evidence to support this. We don't even we're not even going to offer evidence to support it. We're just closing it. It's a unilateral decision based on a, a political promise, based on politics, uh, and that's really not how our system of, of wildlife management should be should be run. You know, at the end of the day, there was a rule to enact a bear management plan and a rule to open a bear hunting season. So now we don't need to have a rule to close it down. We don't have to go through a rulemaking process and take mm-hmm. public comment. We don't have to support the evidence. I mean, these are things that, that we like to, we would believe that, that our decisions are made upon and that our, our, our elected officials are taking those things into consideration. Uh, that clearly didn't happen in this case. So, so what happens next, right? What does the next governor do? Does maybe the next governor that gets elected doesn't like bow hunting because they feel it's an unethical way for hunters to harvest game. And they go through the same process and rule that 
we're going to stop bow hunting on public lands in this particular state, right? And that's why elections are important. And that's why sportsmen have to be aware and be paying attention to these things, because this is a prime example that elections have consequences. And we're dealing with that right now with this lawsuit. Well, it goes beyond that, too, because you talk about the idea of why somebody should care in another state. A lot of times state litigation doesn't transfer very well to another state because it's there's case law in each state that's different. The, the laws are different. But in this case, it's the precedent of the whole idea that a governor can just do this unilaterally, as Sean said. You know, what does a state like California do? Mm-hmm. You know, what does a state like Washington State do? You know, these are ideas that they can easily take and apply to other forms of hunting, whether it's bow hunting or whether it's trapping or whether it's mountain lion hunting or, you know, any of those kinds of cases. You know, this is the kind of full frontal attack that is easily done just by political will. Yeah, yeah. Is it safe to say too that once somebody gets away with something, I mean, or if somebody gets away with something, that then it becomes a lot easier for it to happen again in the future? So if this goes, if this were to go unchallenged, and then like you said, in the future, some other governor comes in, they decide, you know what, it, bow hunting kaput, mm-hmm. done. Then somebody raises an issue and says something that, well, they might say, well, you didn't raise an issue and say something before. I mean, does that then become an issue as well? Certainly, that plays into the case law of all this stuff. You know, that's how, how a lot of litigation is decided is, is based on previous cases and what was decided by previous courts and, and, and on previous arguments. That's why a lot of these lawsuits uh, that we get engaged on are, are so precedent setting and so important. There's a direct correlation to, to the lawsuit we're fighting in Alaska right now, where late in the Obama administration, they changed the rules on national wildlife refuges and national preserve lands, basically told the state of Alaska. We no, no longer find these specific management tools, management methods tasteful, and so you know you no longer can do those. And it's basically the federal government dictating down to the state land manager, who is the cooperative agreement typically works, is that the, the states are the ones that implement wildlife management uh, on the ground, and so their seasons and bag limits and their, their hunting methods are, are the ones that are implemented. And basically, had for the first time, the federal government coming in and saying, no, we don't like that, so you no longer can do that. Well, it's the same kind of thing here. If that stands, we allow that president to sit, then they could they could export that to Wyoming or to Utah or to anywhere and say, you know what, we don't want we don't want to allow you to rifle hunt in this place, but we just don't think it's appropriate. Hmm. You know, so there, there are precedents that are that come out of these cases. There are things that can be exported state to state. And you know, for our you know, one of the reasons why sportsmen and women should care today. Uh, what's happening in California, what's happening in New Jersey, and all these other states where they're not located, is because these things do transfer. They do travel. And if we don't win them there, we don't stop them there, then you know, you're just giving them uh, a foothold to get into uh, pushing these, uh, these kind of closures and these kind of attacks on other states. Yeah. I mean, I kind of had a question for you guys going off that. Like, wildlife management is such a delicate balance because you have wildlife management officials that, you know, went to school for this and they spent, you know, their, their graduate studies, you know, learning about these species and everything. They're the experts and they're the authority in the field. But then obviously wildlife management is a very, you know, it's also a species or there are species that are, are uh, cared for by the people and, you know, citizens and stuff like that who haven't gone to school for these topics, I guess. But are we seeing any states where, you know, wildlife management officials are kind of the, I guess, the gatekeeper on legislation that that gets passed, whereas rather than, you know, presenting the facts and then going out for public opinion and stuff, I I guess, are we seeing any states that are approaching it in that way where they are the final say on these these issues? 
that is the case in a lot of in a lot of regards. Um, there are states that have you know, every state starts from a different different place. There are constitutionally created uh, agencies in some states that give them more flexibility and more distance from political involvement. But in a lot of those cases, you still have commissioners or other board members that sit on those boards that are politically appointed. Mm-hmm. So politics does play into all of this. Certainly, by and large, you know most of the hunting and wildlife management rules and regulations are done at the state level, mm-hmm. unless you're talking about endangered species or migratory species or, or, or things of that, uh, that, that type. So you, you, you can see some of that. You, you know, in a lot of regards, these, these agencies uh, are looking out for the best interest of all wildlife. Mm-hmm. They're not just species. It's, it's their mandate to, to protect the resource. Mm-hmm. Certainly hunting and, and trapping and these other, these other pursuits are one tool that they have to adjust up or adjust down as need be. So the more that we can give them the tools to, to do that free from undue influence, it, you know, that's really what we should be striving to do. You know, we like to pride ourselves on allowing science to be the basis of our community. There's also a human dimensions aspect to it. There's the art side of it as well. It can't just be all, uh, all science. But you know, you, when, as you marry those two things together, you hopefully come out with a good product that has the end goal in mind, which is protecting that resource. Yeah, it's just wild to think, you know, I'm sure there's, I guess, getting back to the New Jersey bear hunt in particular, you're talking about how we have all these processes. And literally, that uh, to me, it sounds like it was just, there was no process. There was, it was just the stroke of a pen, like, this is what I think. And I mean, and you've eliminated an entire hunt, an entire activity on public land. And I just, I find it like when we were first talking about it, and then I'd heard some rumblings about it before. And, and again, consider myself a pretty ardent sportsman. You know, I like to hunt and fish, oh, I'd yeah. say more than average. And my visibility on that topic really wasn't that high. I was aware something was going on. And, and when, since, since it like, since like the day it happened, I haven't heard anything. No. Since. And I just, I find it, when you were telling me, like, I was like, I didn't even realize something like this could happen. Yeah. That's the scary part. You know, you talk about how quick it happened and it was a blink of the eye. Basically from the day the governor announced his executive order directing the DEP commissioner to uh, use her authority, she shut down the bear hunt 10 days later. I mean, it was, it was a week and a half. You went from having a, a fully legal, fully uh, commission-approved plan that, that had a bear hunt to, not, to no hunting on public land in a matter of 10 days, as you said, by the stroke of a pen. It's the fastest moving government I've ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Call darn it when they finally move quick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other, infor- that's got to be, I, I would have to think that's incredibly, something like that happening, incredibly disheartening to the folks that, Eric, you were talking about, that have essentially dedicated their lives to research, mm-hmm. to science, to making uh, very educated, sound recommendations on how a resource can be uh, utilized and managed and basically just take it all your hard work and completely dis- disregard it. Just, yeah. just dismiss it. Completely. Well, and it could be and perhaps will be its very own podcast as well to, to sort of show the other side of this. But it is disheartening to me as, as somebody who both likes to hunt and I enjoy shooting and owning firearms too because we're, we're, we're in an industry where like if you wanted to join our industry but you hate conflict, like you probably shouldn't do it because, mm-hmm. you know, for <laughs> <laughs> For example, like I would say, I would say two of maybe the the nation's top five uh, hot topics are something that we engage in quite often, which are hunting and 
uh, shooting recreationally and, and firearm ownership. And it makes you wonder, too, like, yeah, if somebody can buy the stroke of a pen, just say, whoop, nope, you know, that's, that's, no, that's no deal. I mean, what are they going to say when all of a sudden, you, you know, you talk about firearms? Like I said, that's another huge hot topic issue. And, oh, you know what? No, we don't like those ones. They look scary. It, no scientific reasoning. They just look scary. Mm-hmm. So, nope, can't. Can't have them. Yeah, but Jim, it operates just like this one. It just looks different. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh. No. No, well, you, can, you can use that one. That's a hunting gun. Oh, but they, oh, okay. they operate the same. Uh, no, the one's scarier. Anyway, but it, like I said, different different podcast topic. But it is disheartening, like you said, Mark. And that's a great point. You know, because my question off that is: Have we seen since then any copycat issues where you know this state wants to do this with like a morning dove or any other species that might be kind of on that fringe, so to say? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing similar things. Nothing, uh, nothing from from that level necessarily. With the governor shutting down a full season, but you, you know, you've got bills pending in, in a half dozen states or more that would shut down, you know, coyote hunting contests or wildlife hunting contests, which mm. is an innocuous way of uh, getting at a lot of things that that aren't coyote hunting mm-hmm. contests. A lot of those bills are written in a way that would ban, you know, bird dog field trials. They ban mountain fox hunting. They ban a whole bunch of other pursuits that aren't aren't specifically uh, what is being talked about in the, in the public, you know, and, and you're seeing in a lot of cases they're, they're being shut down on public land or on all lands in the state. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's going to continue to be an issue. Certainly if, if, uh, if this lawsuit doesn't turn out well for us, uh, and I certainly hope that it does, but if it doesn't, then I wouldn't be surprised for, for it to be exported to other states. I mean, you know, you've got a governor in California, it's probably right to pick up this kind of idea. Yeah. You know, there's probably a dozen other states that would be interested in, and, and looking at things like this, they probably find broad support amongst their their core constituencies. And, and, and all we see is, is our community getting the short end of the stick there. How can someone, you brought up one interesting thing I found when you ever talk about politics and legislation, is that a lot of times you'll see a bill get introduced and someone will be talking about it. And in, in this case, what we're discussing is probably you know, some animal rights, you know, activist group or something like that. And they'll discuss a bill. And, you know, in in that specific example, they discuss coyote hunting contests or something. Well, that might be the outward advertisement portion of the bill that they're discussing with everybody. But a lot of times bills, even that aren't related to hunting, they're just related to anything. They have so many different pieces and you see people advertise only one piece of the entire pie a lot. And, it, and they try to kind of get people to glob onto something because of that one piece of the bill that they like. But how, do, how does somebody really ever truly get the full idea of what a bill has in it, you know? Like, is there, I mean, aside from, I don't know, it, do I just have to go and read every single bill word for word? Is that the only way I'm ever going to be able to do it? Or is there a simpler way to kind of figure out what's all, you know, they, they try and package everything. It's, it's the old ad, you got to pass the bill before you know what's yeah. in the bill. Yeah. <laughs> we have a team of people who do nothing but that. That's that's their entire their entire job for us is to read and analyze these pieces of legislation all across the country. There's thousands of these bills that are introduced every year, and and some of them sound good on on, on paper on the headline, right? Oh, it's an act of, to prevent puppy mills. Well, who supports puppy mills? Right. And there's like 17 people in the country who support puppy mills. And Everybody they own a puppy mill. <laughs> yeah, right. but the way these bills are written is very very intentional that would not only apply to the most abusive large-scale commercial breeding operations that are are the bad actors there's very few of those it would apply to your sporting dog kennel it would apply to somebody who's breeding a litter of two dogs a year in their backyard 
know, these aren't high volume commercial breeders who are abusing animals, you know, and so there's a very different actual implementation of what they write versus what the media narrative is and what they try to portray in their messaging. It's the same thing with coyote uh, contests. You know, they, they write it to be about, you know, whether or not you can kill coyotes in, in one of these organized events, but the language says that you can't have any kind of organized competition at all for prize or inducement or just for entertainment. Well, so if you have a couple of buddies that are going out there trying to figure out who's going to shoot the biggest buck this year, and you got, you know, $20 bill on it or you order of buffalo wings or something on it, that's illegal. That's illegal now. And so you are a felon. Shot, right? Yeah. <laughs> or they're giving away a prize package or maybe they're giving away a bow at the end of the season for the biggest buck. That's illegal. Mm. So that's where these things have, they're written very broadly and it captures all these things, you know, that have to do with hunting. I tell you what, you try to limit my intake of buffalo wings, I will fight you <laughs> tooth and nail. Now, now you've poked the bear. <laughs> That's the hill you're willing to die on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that going there, Mark. No, I didn't either. <laughs> you have revealed some things that we may be able to use to our advantage those, around here those at the are office. The things that are important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark's buffalo wings and big bucks. But it's it's wild though. You take you take something like that, or even just like trapping, right? P- you know, a person might say, you know, depending on what's been spun their way, and they say, yeah, you know, I don't like that. Well, get guess what happens when you've got uh, a mole problem in your yard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've mentioned it before. Seven or eight squirrels in my attic. You don't anymore. Yeah. Now I don't. That's all I need to say. I mean, I think a lot of that, too. (laughs) At one point I did. Now I don't. Exactly. (laughs) Moment of silence for the squirrels. (laughs) But but anyways, I think a lot of the, the, you know, it's easy to pick on, like, a contest if it's something that you've never, you know, participated in. Right, we've like, discussed that before on the podcast, yeah. how to a non-hunter it can be kind of weird when yeah. people are like, oh, you, you picture know. people with, like, pitchforks and torches, like, right. you know, with coyote heads on a and stick. That, yeah, well, and that's... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's probably part of the thing that you guys also have to deal with, too, where we've mentioned here before, hunters don't always do themselves the best favors, right. you know? So you guys might be doing all these things to try and promote hunters in a good light and show that a lot of this is just sort of hogwash, for lack of a better term, when people mm-hmm. are trying to limit access or limit seasons and things like that. And then you have people completely taking their you know coyote calling contest or their uh, big buck contest that they yeah. had amongst themselves. They, they take it entirely out of context, mm-hmm. and they show everybody just like, oh, I slammed this slob buck, and you know, yeah. just like... Making it, they don't show anything about the what they did with the meat, right? You know, and then everyone's like, "Oh yeah, we'll see." That's what we're trying to limit. It's yeah. like, well, no, that you know, that's not the whole story, that's right? The, exactly. You know, it's just cool that it was a big buck, but he is going to eat the meat, you know. Yeah. Well, we don't we don't think about it from uh, you know the 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 opposite perspective. Right. We're looking at it from from our own lens, and you know, even just your regular quote unquote grin and grip picture to a lot of folks is a bit unsettling. You know, especially if it's a if the animal has been cleaned up, if there's some blood, or if you can see where you uh, where you you already cleaned the animal. Yeah, it's tongues um, hanging alone, out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let alone the discussion about you know how we phrase some of the things we say about you know I smoked it or I you, yeah. know, I, you yeah. know how we describe it. So our language and and the, and the imagery we're putting out there. Yeah. You're exactly right. It doesn't always put us in the best light when you view it from the general public's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're telling that story to our buddies around the campfire. Yeah, a lot different than what we would tell it to the people in the subdivision. 
Yeah. But yet we use social media as that digital campfire to share those things and talk about those things. Well, the people in the subdivision, along with your hunting buddies, are also seeing it. So yeah, yeah we don't do ourselves any favors a lot of times by, by not putting a complete you know, and total picture together for them that talks about everything. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, they just, the, to your buddy who hunts, like you have the entire context. You yeah. automatically yeah. know that you don't know what you don't know. Right. And it's not their fault, but they're provided right. that limited yeah. snapshot, sometimes literally. And that's the only piece of the story that they're getting. Digital campfire. I like that. Digital campfire. I, I do like, like that. that. <laughs> one of uh, just to toss out another interesting talking point. One of the things we brought up that we could discuss here as well was um, something going on. And I actually, this has been recently brought to my attention. I might be this is perhaps yet another thing that I'm out of date on. But a grizzly bears in Yellowstone oh, yeah. is that a thing? What's going on there? So a couple years ago, the uh, Department of Interior, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, proposed delisting grizzly bears from the endangered species. From, from Federal Protection of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, bears have not only recovered, they've uh, grown in population size past the recovery goal. Uh, they're up about 40% above what the, what the Fish and Wildlife Service says is what they want, the baseline population they wanted to get to to consider them quote-unquote recovered. We're there, we've passed it, we're 200% above that. Uh, the bears are spilling out of the core, uh, core habitat in the park and getting into uh, the surrounding states and the surrounding ranches. And so it was time for the federal government to turn management back to the state wildlife agencies uh, to manage the recovered population. As you, as you guys know, uh, the Endangered Species Act is not a uh, Hotel California type scenario where you check in, you can't ever check out. The whole idea is you put something on the list, you give it protection, you work on habitat, you get the species recovered, and you return it to state management. And, and so that's what the federal government was trying to do. Unfortunately, there were uh, more than two dozen animal rights, anti-hunting uh, organizations that came together and, and individuals who came together to, to sue uh, to stop that effort. And so uh, we've been litigating that case now for oh, about a year and a half or so. Uh, and recently we had a ruling last year where a federal judge put them back under under federal protections. So grizzly bears and the, they call it the greater Yellowstone ecosystem still are a federally protected species. And, and we're right in the middle right now of trying to decide whether or not we're going to appeal that ruling uh, or if we're going to go back to Fish and Wildlife Service uh, on remand and look for uh, a, a different delisting order that might address some of the, the quote-unquote deficiencies that the court identified. Mm -hmm. But long and short of it is, is that bears are still protected in, in the Yellowstone area. So there's like a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier. You know, you're somebody who's made your career in wildlife, and you're one of the bear biologists in that region. You know, you're studying these animals. You're seeing them grow. You're seeing them thrive exceed the recovery goals, but yet they're still tied up in the political process. They're not returned to states where they can be managed. And so that's the that's the frustrating part for all of this, is that the science is telling us one thing. This is this is based off of what the, the biologists are telling. They're recovered. They can be returned to management. But yet it, it becomes a, a political football and ends up in the court system and it costs us, you know, millions and millions of dollars to fight these things, you know. Same thing with wolves up in, yep. you know. Yeah, I was just the, actually thinking that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You take you take something like that, or wolves, right, that truly are. I mean, that's a conservation success story yeah. that yes. should be being celebrated. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. we did it, everybody. I mean, a collective, I mean, so many 
groups and people yep. and states worked so hard and it's this giant success and yet it's like you said it becomes this political football mm-hmm. back and forth really wasting time and, and resources money. and and money that you know there's more there's more animals on the endangered species list that need yep. some help right now i mean so yeah. you're talking about you're pouring all your resources into something that is considered recovered i guess my question is what's not being worked on then yeah cuz you can't even get the stuff that's recovered off yeah. Well, you start to see it impact other other species too. You didn't talk about wolves. You know, look at the moose population in northern Minnesota and in, in Canada. You know, the, the wolves aren't the only reason the moose population is going down, but it certainly is a factor. The idea that you have wolves running around unchecked is certainly a factor into that. And so, at what point do you, as you're arbitrarily protecting the wolf, uh, you know, for for no good reason, are you all all of a sudden pushing moose into that same endangered or threatened category? You know, it, it comes back to... And maybe that's part of their goal, too, Well, right? it certainly could be. certainly could be. I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, who knows? But it certainly comes back to, for me, at the end of the day, wolves, for sure, grizzly bears is another one, especially in the greater Yellowstone region. They don't meet the legislative definition of endangered. They don't meet the legislative definition of threatened. They're not even remotely close to that. You know, when you look at the way that these, the, the ESA is written, it talks about, is a species in danger of going extinct? in all or a significant portion of its range? Or is it likely to be, become so in the, in the near future, in the foreseeable future? And grizzly bears are neither of those. If yeah. grizzly bears were to fall from 700 down to 550, there are mechanisms in the Endangered Species Act and in the state management plans that would put them back on the list. They are not in danger of going extinct at any point in this foreseeable future. And so they should be returned to state management. That's the way the system was designed to work. And unfortunately, it's not working that way today. No, and, and listening to you say that, Evan, it reminded me, I took a screenshot of, um, this is from the Sierra Club, which, you know, they, the Sierra Club, Humane Society of the United States, the Center for Biological Diversity. These are a lot of the groups that we, we go up against in the court systems or for these different things. But they also use these as, you know, emotional triggers for fundraising. So I took this screenshot. This was off of the Sierra Club's Facebook page uh, about two weeks ago. Yellowstone grizzly, northern spotted owl, gray wolf, the bald eagle, exclamation point, all could go extinct without the Endangered Species Act. So they're fundraising off of that stuff, guys. Mm-hmm. Bald eagles are going extinct. No, <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> They've recovered and they're thriving and they're doing great. So are wolves and so mm-hmm. are grizzly bears. But that's the stuff that they put out there and the picture uh. on it. Is of course of a wolf cub, you know, is going to get the heartstrings. Oh yeah, of everybody who's out. It, Golly, man! Oh, I just saw a bald eagle oh, this last week, and I'm just going to throw this out there quick. <laughs> it was so cool. <laughs> anyway, it, well, and that's what sucks is like it's it's getting to this point now where the Endangered Species Act is almost becoming demonized because of situations like this. When in reality, it's a very integral piece of wildlife management. But because of stories like this, like the, the, you know, grizzly bear and the wolf specifically, you're getting a group of people that is essentially looking at the Endangered Species Act and they're demonizing it. When in reality, it is an integral piece of the component. Well, it's like, man, if if it was, if used as intended, then it's one of the greatest things in the world. Yep. Dude, if people like me wouldn't have just taken all those marketing classes back in college and all that, I feel like we'd have so many less problems. Because you see stuff like that, like a post like that, and that is like some brilliant 
border like basically social engineering where people they're just going to look at that and they're just going to they're not going to re- do any research. They're going to scroll right by that and be like, "Oh my gosh, look at all these animals. They're going extinct." Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll throw my support behind you. I mean, yep. it's like you haven't done anything. Like pro- bravo to them for doing such great marketing where they took everything out of context mm-hmm. and then and then made people make an emotional reaction baseless just off of a cute photo and some some words that were arbitrary enough to make them mm-hmm. believe one thing. Yep. Well, Jimmy, I mean, it's a known fact that an animal's value is based off its uh, cuteness factor. Mm-hmm. Well, I, thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was how big it was. No, oh, cuteness factor. No, that's when definitely. it becomes... Cute an, with yeah. big antlers. Oh, that's when it becomes gosh. an adult. It only... <laughs> now, let me, let me ask this, though, because... And I guess I, I don't know, but there are, like, more, I guess, high-profile species, right? And honestly, I do think, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Their cuteness plays a part in it. Yeah, grizzly bears, wolves. You know, I had a teddy bear growing up. That wolf <laughs> looks like my dog. Yeah, whatever. Well, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. but also, like, are there? And I don't. What about some lizard that is threatened or endangered? I mean, are those getting? Are those things getting the attention that they deserve or not? And I don't know. I'm not an endangered species act expert. First one to say that, but I guess that's a, a question that I've had in my head is like, as we just keep hyper-focusing on, on these species that definitely deserve a lot of attention, but have recovered. I just, have recovered. I'm sorry. I just looked up cute lizard. You can make a lizard cute. Anyway. Okay. Never mind. I stand corrected. <laughs> Got to be okay. careful what you search. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carry but, on. I mean, is, is there any, I guess, is there, is there any merit to that? Is that happening yeah, or no, not? It's a, it's a fair enough question, Mark. You know, I mean, I think the the distinction here is, is is breakout ESA from game to non-game species. You know, certainly we we in the hunting community view it from a from a, a hunting perspective, obviously. And so sure. we're looking at the, the the major game species that have been either recovered or are in recovery right now. But there are a whole other list of of species where you know regulated hunting isn't isn't really a factor at all into whether or not they are threatened. You know, you look at habitat loss, you look at um, some of these other, you know, environmental factors that play into it. You know, you talk about urbanization of the country, you know, you talk about energy development or whatever the other issues might be that cause some of these things to, to, to have struggles, you know, just the growing population. You know, every time we're moving out of the city, we're pushing the habitat of animals into a much smaller and more condensed area. So those things are naturally going to happen. Whether or not it's getting the appropriate level of focus from fish and wildlife or, or others, you know, I, I don't know that I could speak to that. I do know it is a tactic of, of some animal rights groups to try to overwhelm the uh, the folks in Interior and the folks in the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they'll they'll petition the government on you know 75 new species of of this lizard, and that bat, and this moth, and this thing here, and, and, and what they're trying to do is basically overwhelm them into a settlement where. There's no way the government can respond to that in a reasonable amount of time and do the appropriate level of, uh, of impact study and research and, and, and analysis. And so they're forced to come to the settlement table and settle with these animal rights and anti-hunting groups. And they can advance their agenda on some of their other non-game species through those mechanisms. Amazing. I, I don't know that I speak to it beyond that, but there are, there are, there's a lot of that that's going on. Can I ask kind of a tinfoil hat question? Yes. <laughs> en- encouraged. These animal, <laughs> these animal rights groups that we're discussing. Now, I have I have no doubt that many people that are part of these animal rights groups have, in their heads, good intentions, and they do care about animals. But I wonder 
the actual people at the top, mm-hmm. do they actually care about the animals or do they more use the animal rights group as, groups as a vessel to play on the emotions that animals can invoke on certain people to sort of influence other political agendas? Did that get did that get too tinfoil hatty for the for our podcast or you know am I starting to get into some some I think that's no, shaky ground or what I think it's a fair point you know and again this kind of gets back to the non game game species discussion you know as you're talking about and I'm going to bastardize the phrase I've never say it but anthropom yes yes anthropomorphization <laughs> you know these 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 charismatic metafauna that are out there the grizzly bear the, even the bald eagle wolves mountain lions these things that We've grown up seeing in cartoons. We grow up seeing polar bears and Coca-Cola commercials at Christmas time. You know, there's a reason people don't associate those animals with danger. They don't associate them with anything other than cute, cuddly creatures that misunderstood. But at the same time, we don't have that kind of reaction when one of these animal rights or anti-hunting groups sues over some endangered crawfish. But they're still doing it. So I think the question is: is is you know, does that general public actually care about? all these other, you know, down ticket species, or are they just really focused on the major ones? And certainly from the perspective of the animal rights group, we saw it with the, the wolf issue. We've seen it specifically on the grizzly bear issue. Their rush to fundraising is immediate. Oh yeah. And, and you know, I certainly don't have internal access to their financials, but I guarantee it's a net fundraiser for where they're, they're, they're raising more money than they're spending on these issues. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the same day that it was announced that the grizzlies, uh, Yellowstone ecosystem grizzlies were going to be delisted. All those major groups on their social media were, were on it, man. I mean, they were full-fledged campaign mode. Grizzly bears will be hunted to extinction. You know, that type of language. Because it evokes emotion out of people. People get, you know, we have this instant outrage now. We see it on social media. Yeah. They're going to they're hunt them to extinction? That's horrible. I'm going to donate right now. I'm going to sign up right now. And so it, it, uh, yeah. it gets They see it. Well, yeah. it's playing on this, this interesting place we are in the world right now where we've got this culture of recreational outrage, right? We've got this this just built-in culture that we want to be outraged at things. Mm-hmm. And at the same time... <laughs> recreational <we're> outrage. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's so well, true. We're also, we're also a drive-by consumer. We don't want to think. We don't want to read. We just want to know the headline. And so you marry those two things together. We want to be pissed off. We don't want to know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds like a dangerous combination. Yeah. Oh, it's so true, though. I mean, somebody comes up to you and gets you all fired up, and they're like, what, well, do you want to do anything about it? Do you want to learn more? It's like, no, I'm, I'm good. You, you, <laughs> I'm, I'm just pissed. <laughs> I'm just, just going to go with the anger on this one. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. But, yeah, you know, I was, I was curious, too, if you, like, when you, when you look into some of this stuff, I mean, I, I didn't know if there was also things going on where maybe there's certain things – that aren't just the fact that hunters hunt certain animals that people think are cute or whatever, but there's also another common, other common traits amongst hunters that these animal rights groups also don't like. And by playing on the cuteness or whatever of these animals that they're hunting, maybe they can push these hunters out of the, out of the scene. You know, like hunters are obviously they're buying a lot of firearms, for example, or they're buying bows or they're patronizing sporting goods stores and and gun shops and whatever else they're doing. I didn't know if there was other things where it's kind of like, well, hey, we can kind of get at this group of folks by, you know, by this one thing, but then that'll also eliminate them from doing this other thing that we don't like, too. I, I could... I don't know. It might, I mean, my tinfoil hat says maybe. Well, 
I don't know. I mean, another thing that I think about, too, because, like, like you guys talked about how the polar bears in the Coca-Cola commercials and it gets humanized. At what point do, like, you know, actual fatalities, like, uh, you know, an elk hunting guide in Wyoming getting mauled by a grizzly bear or, or, you know, whatever, how many fatalities does it take where all of a sudden, rather than, you know, wanting to protect them and thou shall not hunt these at all, period, at what point do, do we start finally entertaining the thought of a hunting season at that? You know, like, that's the question that I would have for those groups, I guess. And it's, I don't know. I don't know what that's worth, but that's just something that I've been thinking about quite a bit because I have a buddy who's a, a wildlife biologist, and he has mentioned that he won't hunt in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem because of grizzlies because they have, you know, no fear of humans and stuff like that. And oh, I've got just a ton of cases of folks that I've talked to that have had... I guess what you'd call a, a, a negative interaction with the grizzly bear, you know, and, and it's folks like us who are out, yeah. you know, in our wild places, enjoying wild things. And I do think that grizzly bears are one of those wild things mm-hmm. to be enjoyed. Yeah. However, the, the rate or, I mean, and this is just like my personal interactions with folks and, and their anecdotes. I mean, it's pretty astounding. Like how many people I've talked to that have had, Oh man, we got charged by a bear three times. We actually, you know, they ended up pepper spraying it three times, and it just like, and I guess you know, over and over and over again. And I guess where I'm going with this in a super long-winded uh, format, as per usual, I feel like a lot of a lot of the opposition, and this is, I guess, this is speculation, but may not be spending as much time in these wild places, even though they oppose what's going or potentially could go on there. Like our natural reaction when we see an increase or spike or whatever in grizzly bear attacks, for example, is, uh, you know, I wonder if they're being managed properly or hunted, you know, and stuff like that. I feel like to somebody who isn't, like you said, Mark, out in those wild places or doesn't have an appreciation for hunting and things, their reaction might be, well, you just shouldn't be back there. Yeah, you don't belong there. Yeah. Stay out. Yeah, but it's their own fault, you Mm -hmm. know. They went, you yeah. know, but it's like you don't, you don't realize. Yeah, I mean, any, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Is there anything? No, I think you're dead right. You know, and grizzlies probably isn't the best example because there's very few people that actually live in grizzly country, respectively. Most of the people in the country don't have any interaction, any interaction with grizzly bears at all. But I'll give you another example that's along the same line. Think about wolves in Michigan. Ninety percent of the wolf populations in the in the northern fifteen percent of the state. And 90% of the population of Michigan, uh, people who live in Michigan is in the southern 15% of the state. You know, if they have the opportunity to ban wolf hunting, you know, the people down south aren't going to have day-to-day interactions with wolves. They're not going to know what that's like. Yet, that's where they live. So they're not going to have that interaction. I think, I think that's a, it's a very fair point to point out the demographic shift that's taking place in this country. You know, we, we like to think that people have interaction with wildlife, but most of them don't even have interaction with any level of wildlife let alone make, uh, apex predator species. Most people live in cities to now. They live in their either urbanized or in the suburban suburbs of these, these massive metropolitan areas that really you might be lucky to see deer or you know, you'll probably see some Canada geese that yeah. are invading your pond. But outside of that, you don't have a lot of day-to-day interaction with wildlife species. And so I, I think it's a very fair argument to look at how the demographics have shifted in this country and how that's harmed the idea of wildlife management because of a lack of Understanding. Lack of understanding, and it goes beyond that. It goes to a lack of understanding of how and where food comes from. Yeah. It just shows up in the supermarket, wraps in cellophane, and ready to be eaten. Yeah. You know, there, there's no, there's no death behind it. There's no, 
there's no uh, animals that, that were harmed in the making of there's that. There's no face. There's no yeah. cute, yeah. cute little eyes. There's no appreciation for it either. Right. I mean, when you sit down and you, you cook a piece of backstrap, I mean, you have appreciation for that meal that the average person who doesn't hunt or experience those types of things that gets their meat at a supermarket doesn't have. It is dumb. There's Nothing. a disconnection. Nothing's getting thrown away when backstrap is getting no. cooked. No. <laughs> Nothing. No, yeah, we've talked about that exact same thing before, like the amount of pride and, like, I guess, you know, your level of consciousness when you're eating a meal like that or sharing that meal with somebody else is through the roof. And th- and this is in no way attack an attack on domestic meat or something like that because right. yeah, I eat that too, but there is a difference. Yeah. And yeah. people who have never had that uh, kind of experience or, or don't have that connection – I think they, yeah, they, they just like you said, they, they don't have appreciation. Yeah, yeah appreciation. There's just there's a dis- there is a disconnect, mm-hmm. or they there lack is. connection. Yeah, exactly. Big time. Man, we chatted about lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to sum it up. Oh, uh, we're uh, we've we've got the we've got the marker here that says we're over an hour. This has been some super good stuff. What do you say we jump into some last calls? Yep. Should we explain to these guys what last calls is? Last calls. What last calls is? Last. <laughs> what last calls is? <laughs> Final closing thoughts. Basically, uh, bring her in for landing. Bam. I feel like that's the best way to describe yep. it. Our guests always have the best ones, so we save them for last, and we start out. And usually, since uh, since I do the brief explanation of what a last call is, I just wind up doing my last call, and usually it's pretty. Uh, hastily put together and not very you know you need some time jim i can't even think of the word to exp- well whatever uh my last Sending call it. i'm just gonna send it is that like with you guys are on social media and all that good stuff right oh yeah so we if if someone were to follow you guys on social would we be basically getting you know the a, a good taste of what all is going on across the country and what can one do you know like what's okay i'm aware of things awareness mm-hmm. kind of starts something but what now does one do so yeah the first yeah the first question social media yes you know follow sportsman's alliance on facebook on instagram on twitter and you'll see what we're putting out there you'll see the issues that we're working on we also interject different things on social media that you know, might not just be legislative related, but are still wildlife related that, you know, are, are relative to stuff that we're doing outdoors. The challenge with social media is all the algorithms and how our information is filtered. Uh, so we might be putting out a ton of content on Facebook, but it might not be popping up in your feed. True. Um, so really the best way to get that up to date information is to sign up for our newsletter. You know, there's no cost to that. That's free. So if you go to sportsmen's, M-E-N-S, alliance.org, and you sign up for our newsletter, you'll start to get those emails on a weekly basis. And it's it's just highlights of what's going on out there on the legislative side of things, things that our business partners are working on, so on and so forth. You know, that's that's probably step number one is to do that. You know, step number two, you know, right now we're running a campaign called uh, the Pledge to Protect Hunting. And, you know, that originated several months ago when uh, Humane Society of the United States kind of relaunched their, what they call their big fights. You know, one of their big fights or their key initiatives is called to, to end trophy hunting. Well, we know the word trophy is just kind of thrown around and it's bastardized. They really just want to end hunting. So 
we said, let's counterpunch that with the pledge to protect hunting. So we're asking people to do that as well, just to just sign that pledge. That's on our website. Uh, that's on social media as well. And then the last thing, you know, we want people to become members of the organization. Funding is the lifeblood of any nonprofit organization. That's the oxygen that we need to breathe. Uh, and we need funding to fight those types of issues. You know, so our basic membership, you know, it starts at only $35. So that's like the price of a pack of broadheads, you know, just to stay informed on those types of things and, and to, you know, to fight the good fight along with us. So that would be my, uh, I guess, cool. recap or call there. Okay, cool. Right on. Right on. It's a good one. No, that is. Marco? Jim, you took mine, but I think ah. you, you may have forced me well, into... Well, you probably have eight others. That's true. <laughs> Mark is notorious for having... I, I just have one now, though. Okay. I think, oh. you, I think you actually forced me into possibly a better last call. So my last All call right. is actually a question, so I'm going to put you guys back in the hot seat. But take this, uh, the New, G- New Jersey bear hunt, which, you know, maybe that's, that's actually not an example. Let's just say, in general... There's something happening outside of my state that I care about. You know, I'll, I'll make up, this is purely hypothetical, purely hypothetical, but they're going to ban deer hunting in California. Let's say that's the hypothetical thing. And I live in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. But I, with all my heart, care about those folks in California and just everything that goes along with the implications of that. Can I do something about that? Can I, even though that's not the state that I reside in, can I have an impact there is is that even possible Uh, yeah absolutely i mean certainly from um you know from a a direct advocacy perspective your voice is probably minimized compared to that of californians but still if you're going to be somebody who's potentially going to deer on that state then then i'd encourage you to reach out and talk to talk to folks there about that the the way you can be involved is to uh is is to put your weight behind the organizations that are working on those kinds of issues you know, not only your, your time and your energy, but, but your financial resources as well, and make sure that we're supporting the organizations that, that are engaging on, on, on the advocacy side of, of, of the ledger. You know, it really dovetails into kind of where I was going to go with my, my final thought with what Sean was saying, but, you know, our conservationist campaign is, is, is that exactly, right? Mm-hmm. Hunting and wildlife conservation are inextricably linked. There's no, comp- there's no doubt about that, but it's no longer good enough just for us to stand up and do the conservation side. We can't just do the habitat work. We can't just do the, the species recovery work. We have to also do the advocacy side. We can't stop doing those other things. There are dozens of other groups and partners of ours that do fantastic work all across this country to restore wild places and, and, and habitats and, and species. But there's more to it than that. You know, For our community, we need to protect the hunting methods and, and means and, and seasons. And, and so for us, it's really a, a link there between those two. You know, it, Sportsmen and women need to do more than just put their $35 into habitat. They need to do more than just going to a local bank. They need to step up and protect their way of life. They need to educate their friends. They need to educate their family. They need to put out the, the best foot forward that we can collectively as an industry. Because if we don't, then we're going to see these things come home to roost. And so certainly from, from an individual's perspective in another state, yes, your dollars can, can be impactful. Your, your, your help on social media spreading the word can be impactful. You know, your, your direct advocacy is, is certainly impactful. And so there's a lot of ways for people to be involved, uh, even if it doesn't impact them right in their, their backyard. Cool. Right on. Rick? Well, it, Rick, oh. I think it wound up coming down to Rick. Yep, I like it. Being our final. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, for me, I think I've even used this exact last call on a, another podcast of the, that we did, similar to like the, the last call recycler. Yeah, I am. But you know, it, as hunters, like we we touched on it earlier, there are so many well-funded groups of you know organizations that are going against hunters. And as hunters, when we're unified, we're the most powerful rebuttal to those groups. But oftentimes we find ourselves arguing amongst ourselves, whether it's, you know, we don't agree with some kind of CWD management plan or we don't agree with what the guy on the other side of the fence shot. And rather than putting that, those arguments, adding fuel to the fire of those arguments, think about, you know, the fact that as we continue to butt heads within, all we're doing is weakening our foundation of, of hunters. So, you know, I, I just would encourage people to think about that. You know, the next time they find themselves in a situation where they might want to say something, there's a greater overall cause to all this stuff. And that's definitely should be in the forefront of people's minds. Nailed it. Bam. Yep. Nailed it. Probably because you did it once before. So it, it, yeah. the, the second butt. time was better. The second <laughs> so, time was definitely better. Very well, rehe- <laughs> very well rehearsed, Eric. Yep. Oh, man. Well, Guys, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you being on the podcast and chatting a little bit about some of these issues. Hopefully, everybody out there listening on the Vortex Nation podcast, you've you've gotten a good idea uh, by now of the fact that there's a lot going on that you probably don't realize is going on uh, in your everyday life, and it's pretty easy for stuff to happen insidiously. You know, you just kind of. I'm just. It's like when you're a kid and you grow and you get taller. Everybody keeps telling you, oh, my gosh, you're so much taller. And you're like, I didn't, I couldn't have told you that, you know, because you live with yourself every day. You don't notice those little tiny changes. But anyway, just, yeah, keep keep yourselves aware of things going on. And, yeah, follow these guys on join social media and join more. their newsletter. Join up with their, their membership and be a kick-butt hunter-vationist. Bam. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. We're going to end it on the old bye here. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.